Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Raj Sisodia here with me from uh, Boston. Welcome to my podcast, Raj. Thank you, Vesna. Great to be with you. I'm really happy to meet you. And it's definitely all thanks to our mutual friend, Bob Chapman. Yes, Bob is a delightful friend. I have the opportunity to work with him on the book, Everybody Matters, and get to tell his amazing life story and all the wisdom that he has about leadership. Yeah, he's, a, he's an amazing, amazing person. And uh, I've, of course, um, uh, read up a lot about you, Raj, uh, and um, it's a bit of a bit of a challenge to kind of summarize uh, everything you are doing and have been doing and uh, where you are active, but I'll, I'll give it a try. Just a short intro for those of you who might not uh, know of Raj. Uh, Raj, is, Raj Sisodia has been on a mission to bring caring humanity and healing to business and capitalism since uh, 2007, and he is a preeminent thought leader in the rapidly growing movement to redefine the purpose and role of business in society. He's co-founder and the co-chairman of Conscious Capitalism Inc. and has published over 100 academic articles and 12 books, including Conscious Capitalism, Everybody Matters, and The Healing Organization. And his work is featured uh, in many media outlets, such as Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Fortune, Financial Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, Economic Times, CNBC, and many others. And Raj is a professor of global business and Whole Foods Market Research Scholar in Conscious Capitalism at Babson College. Uh, he's on the board of directors at the Container Store and a trustee of Conscious Capitalism, Inc. So, Raj, I've been thinking about the fact that there are many, many great, great companies out there that are fueled by by, by this passion and, and purpose, and they're doing great. They're outperforming um, uh, really, and, and really doing it by helping all stakeholders thrive. These companies are also very resilient in downturns. Uh, so there's no really trade-off. Um, but these companies are rare. Um, they're very recognized and valued and admired and even loved, but they're pretty rare. So my question is then, why don't we have more of these companies out there? Well, you know, it's like saying, why don't we have more wise, thoughtful, happy, impactful, purposeful people, right? It's a matter of awareness and education and uh, and what you've been taught. And so for a very long time, we have taught, and I'm part of the whole world of business schools, right? I've been teaching 35 years. We produce a half a million graduates a year and just in the U.S. And we've been teaching them a very distorted and narrow and uninspiring story of business. And that's been going on for you know, a century, maybe. Uh, that it's only about profits and shareholders and that we have to use customers and employees and suppliers and you know our planet and the uh, communities, et cetera, in order to achieve that one objective. And that's a very narrow and instrumental and a selfish view of business. And as we are finding, it also doesn't work very well. Uh, it certainly doesn't work well in terms of the impact on people's health and well-being, on the impact on our planet, but it also actually doesn't work well in terms of generating financial wealth. The businesses that actually align all of the drivers of value creation, you know, engaged and passionate and purposeful employees, loyal and uh, trusting customers, you know, committed suppliers, investors who believe in what you're trying to do. All of those things come together. It creates extraordinary value. But when everybody is simply saying, what can I get out of this? 
right? How can I get the lowest price? How can I get the highest pay without working as much? You know, everybody becomes a taker. So we create a way of being in business where everybody's part of a shared vision, has common values, and they're all part of doing something wonderful together. I saw recently some uh, interview with you where you were talking about, you know, what makes people happy. And that literally happiness doesn't, of course, come from pursuing happiness. And at the same time, there is this parallel to um, business. Um, the more they pursue profit, the less likely they will be profitable. Yeah, so that wisdom really comes from Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, one of the most important books ever written, according to the Library of Congress. And that book has a very fundamental message. It says human beings pursue happiness or they want to be happy, right? I mean, that's that's a fundamental human drive and desire, which is fine. But he said happiness cannot be pursued. Happiness ensues. It is the outcome. And it's the outcome of living a life of meaning and purpose. And what does that mean? It means doing work that matters, makes a difference in the lives of others. It means loving without condition. That we human beings have a need to care and we need to be able to express that care. Otherwise, we don't feel, you know, like we are being fully human. And it comes from finding meaning in our suffering. We do not control what happens to us, but we do have the ability to control how we respond to what happens. And if we actually look at things that happen to us and respond in a way that's that's constructive, that extracts lessons and meaning from that, right, so that then we are able to elevate to another level. So we, we experience certain kind of loss or suffering, and if our reaction is, I'm going to prevent that kind of suffering in the future, not only for myself, but for others, then that's a way of finding meaning, right? Mm -hmm. If it's a parent whose child dies with some kind of disease or certain kind of incident, and they say, I want to prevent that from happening for others. So those are the principles from Viktor Frankl, and that's what leads to real happiness, true happiness, living a life of meaning and purpose. And I believe that you can change the name of that book to The Corporation's Search for Meaning. And the lessons would be the same, essentially that businesses pursue profits the way humans pursue happiness. But happiness, profits cannot be pursued. Profits also ensue. They are the outcome right, of creating extraordinary value. And the same three principles of building a business on a higher purpose that connects to something that is important and needed in the world. It comes from building the business on love and not fear. And it comes from a mindset that we grow from adversity. Tough times like the pandemic, like the financial crisis, you know, like, well, periodically we have these. That those are times for us to actually grow and evolve and become even more committed and stronger. If you remember Bob Chapman's story in the 2008 financial crisis is when their culture really came together. Because that was an opportunity to demonstrate that they really meant what they were talking about. Yeah, exactly. And and do you have other examples of great companies that you admire that has done exactly that? Well, sure. I think the more contemporary example right now on the world stage is Unilever. Uh, under Paul Polman's leadership, and he was CEO for over a decade, You know, the complete, he completely transformed that company. He brought the idea of sustainable living to the core of that company's uh, That was the strategy. It wasn't that we have you know, this is our strategy for making money, and then we know we have to be sustainable. Their strategy was to become the most sustainable company that provides all of these different kinds of products and services. And that company has uh, continued that journey with the current CEO as well. So they have made deep commitments, for example, Living Wage, which started under Paul Polman uh, in 190 countries. So they are committed to paying a living wage to their employees. And now they are saying all of your 
60,000 suppliers have to also do that by 2030s. They're going to work with them to help them evolve in that way. And as they have identified the two biggest challenges in the world that we face today, one is climate change and all the associated environmental issues that go with that. And the other is social inequality. And unless business addresses both of those, that we will essentially be uh, uh, building a world uh, which you know, is headed down a path of destruction, uh, either through climate change or through social inequality or both. Both of those factors are going to evolve into destroying society if you don't do, don't do something about it. So those two become the biggest priorities for business as well as for governments and, uh, and uh, the nonprofit sector as well, right? So I think that's a great example. There we have many, many others in conscious capitalism, Southwest Airlines, you know, Whole Foods, uh, Container Store, where I'm on the board, Costco, um, Wegmans, Trader Joe's, uh, Patagonia, L.L. Bean. Uh, there are many, you know, many, many companies around the world, really. And, and not all of them are new companies. Some of them have been around 100 years. Uh, the Tatas in India are a good example of a company that was founded 140 years ago on these kinds of principles. They didn't use the same language or the same words, but they had a higher purpose from day one, and that was around nation building. The question they always asked was, what does India need? And that's how they decided to invest. And, uh, and they always considered society to be their primary stakeholder, but then their employees were their second stakeholder, right? And, and investors, in a way, were at the end of the line, the last Right, and when you do everything right for everybody, then investors also benefit. And, and that was my big aha in getting into this world, somewhat accidentally. The book I wrote called Firms of Endearment, which identified a group of companies like this, uh, which were loved by all of their stakeholders. And when I did the financial analysis at the end of my research, not at the beginning, you know, very often those kinds of business books, you start with a group of very successful companies, and then you say, what made them successful? I started with a group of companies that were loved by all stakeholders, but we weren't talking about their financial success. And then I said, okay, when you do that, what, what happens to your finances? And I thought, well, you know, they're paying their people much more. They're paying their suppliers more. They're investing in their communities, investing in the environment. They're paying taxes at a higher rate. Maybe you don't make as much money. And maybe that's okay because you're creating much more value. I found that they outperformed the market by nine to one over a 10-year period dramatically outperform. If you remember Bob Chapman's, Barry Waymiller has grown at a compounded, I believe, uh, 16% a year now for 20 plus years, right? So these kinds of businesses, uh, you know, they thrive financially while they're also creating intellectual well-being, emotional well-being, spiritual well-being, physical well-being, ecological well-being, all of those simultaneously. So it's not a trade-off. It's not about saying we can choose to be very profitable and make a lot of money, or we can choose to be good for people and the planet, but actually not really make it. Those two things can and must go together. We do need the money. We do need the financial wealth. So, you know, free societies don't function without corporate profits. You know, I believe it is socially irresponsible not to be profitable, but it matters how you make the money. Because we can make the money by squeezing people and damaging the environment and, you know, just creating lots of suffering in the world. Or we can make money and simultaneously create healing and flourishing in the world. What do you think, what kind of like measurements or KPIs should we have actually or strive for? And which can, in a way, reflect a company's ability to, you know, support all life in a way. Yeah. 
Well, I think first of all, we have to look stakeholder by stakeholder, right? So I, I use the acronym, I a lot of acronyms in the book. So SPICY, society, partners, investors, customers, employees, and the environment, right? And we have to look at what matters and what's most important in each of those, right? And make sure that we measure that and track that and make sure we deliver deep value for each of them, right? So, uh, for example, the idea of measuring your footprints. If you're a business, you're concerned about uh, the impact that you're having on the world, on the planet, then you have to look at, okay, what are the footprints? Carbon, of course, we talk about water, we talk about solid waste, right? And there may be others that are more based upon community and so forth. And we have to look at where are we today, where we want to go, and where can we go beyond that? And so there are companies that I write about, like one in Costa Rica called FIFCO, which produces beer and soft drinks, and they looked at their footprints, you know, five things, right? Uh, Water, carbon, solid waste, but also obesity because of the soft drinks and the sugar, and alcoholism because of the beer and the consumption habits that people had. And they said, okay, how do we actually improve on all of those? And so they set aggressive targets for getting to water neutral by a certain date, carbon neutral by a certain date, solid waste. And then eventually they said, we want to have a positive impact. Instead of a negative footprint, can we have a positive footprint on water? Can we have a positive footprint on carbon? Can we have, you know, a positive footprint? And then how do we change consumption habits? How do we change our product, uh, you know, ingredients so that we cut the sugar by 50% over time so that we teach people uh, about uh, drinking and not to engage in excessive drinking and binge drinking, but they can spread out their consumption you know, over time and so forth. So you can look at all of those impacts and see what is it that we can do in order to alleviate the negative and actually then go to the positive side. And likewise for our employees, they want meaning, they want purpose, they want joy, they want dignity, they want to grow, they want to evolve. How do we create conditions in which people can do all of that, right? How do we become what's now called a deliberately developmental organization where people are growing and learning and evolving as they continue to do their work. Customers focus on their uh, quality of life, their health and their well-being, not just focus on selling them stuff, right? And so for each stakeholder, we can go at a deeper level. We can almost apply Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? What's the base level, the need that the employee has? It's a job. What's the higher level need? It's a career. What's higher than that? It's a calling, I was born to do this. How can I create my work like that? Likewise for customers, et cetera. So we create higher levels of value for all of them. And those can all be measured and tracked, right? We can have net promoter scores, for example, for customers. We can have customer uh, satisfaction, customer trust, loyalty, et cetera. So once we have a commitment to do this, it's not hard to find the relevant measures and then to be able to set goals and hold ourselves accountable to achieving those goals in a very public way. And I know that you've been also talking about uh, the fact that there is a rise of, of feminine values in society, um, like balancing our feminine and masculine kind of characteristics to build uh, this conscious uh, leadership. And you've also written a book about it, uh, The Shakti Leadership. Um, so what kind of characteristics are we talking about and, and uh, how has that changed, do you think? Well, I mean, if you look at human history, uh, we recognize that every societal institution for millennia has been run by men uh, on a very limited set of masculine values. So, you know, masculine masculine and feminine, we have healthy aspects and then there are unhealthy aspects, right? So the healthy aspects of the masculine as a considered masculine energy, not necessarily male or female, but masculine energy is uh, strength, courage, 
discipline, order, structure, right? Um, those are the kinds of um, uh, positive masculine energies. But if you don't have any feminine influence, then that becomes domination, aggression, hyper-competition, winning at all costs, right? That becomes the unhealthy or the toxic masculine energy. And that's unfortunately what we've had in the world. That's why we have had, I mean, you live in Europe, right? So Europe was the most warlike region of the world. Until 1946, European countries fought 1,200 wars with each other in 600 years. On average, two wars every year. And since 1946, there have been zero wars between European countries, right? So we have evolved beyond that mindset, which was a hyper-masculine mindset in Europe. Right? Not, not necessarily in the Middle East or in the U.S. or other places as well. Right? So we have had that domination of masculine energy and of men. And, and that got hardwired into our democracy and into capitalism. So if you look at the U.S. as a, as a uh, ground zero in a way for the evolution of capitalism and democracy, right? this was the first full democracy. We didn't have a monarch. We didn't have any parallel system out there. Um, and it was rooted on some enlightenment principles that the founders brought in through the Declaration of Independence, etc., the uh, elevation of the individual, uh, and the guaranteeing of certain fundamental rights. All of that was wonderful, but it also said we believe that all men are created equal and are endowed by their you know, uh, creator with certain inalienable rights and so forth. But it really was limited to men. Women could not vote, women could not own property, women could not start a business, women couldn't do anything really for about 150 years, you know, after 140 years after the founding of the country. So women were shut out of the political and the economic realm. So capitalism and democracy both evolved in a hyper-masculine way. And what that meant was we achieved a lot, but we also caused a lot of suffering. There were winners and there were losers. That's almost by definition when you have all that masculine energy. It's about defeating and conquering, right, and subjugating. And so we achieved progress, but at a huge, huge, enormous human cost and planetary cost. What we are seeing now, I think, in this century will be a turning point. This probably is the biggest story of this century. Some people are calling it Sophia's century, Sophia being the Greek goddess, right? that after millennia in which we've had domination of main, uh, masculine energy and men, that in this century, we're starting to see the rise of women. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with education. Uh, women are now about 60% of college students in all the developed countries, all the OECD nations on average. Women outnumber men in college everywhere in the world except for uh, Middle East and, uh, and South Asia. And so what that means is that white-collar professions, you know, you need more and more college education now to do many jobs. So women have an inherent advantage in that. Not only are they the majority of students, they get higher grades, right? And they uh, graduate at a higher rate. So white-collar professions are already statistically dominated by women and more so will happen the legal profession, the medical profession, soon the accounting and many, many other professions, uh, technology, you know, anything, uh, anything that doesn't re really require too much physical uh, elements. Uh, so we're going to see now the rise of women, and we already are. Women outnumber men in the American workforce already. And therefore, we're starting to see women rise into leadership. In the past, we had women in lower positions, but not in the upper positions. And that, too, is changing rapidly. Where 25 years ago, there was one woman running a Fortune 500 company. Now there are about 30, which is still not much. But you know, the, the angle, the rate of change is significant, and it will continue to evolve. And with that will come a fundamental change 
uh, in the nature of human society. Because when you had very few women in leadership, they had to show up almost as men. Uh, so if you look at historically, we had some women in, in politics, uh, not too many in business, but we had Margaret Thatcher in England, and she was known as the Iron Lady, right? Because she was tough. Uh, the original Iron Lady was Golda Meir in Israel, uh, tougher than the toughest men. And then in India, we had Indira Gandhi, who was the prime minister in the 1970s, and she was known as the only man in her cabinet, even though she was actually the only woman, right? Because again, she was tougher than the toughest man. So women had to show up with all this excessive masculine energy and not be able to bring caring, compassion, empathy, inclusiveness, right? All of the things that are human qualities that we label as feminine and they are probably more present. It's kind of the mother energy uh, that they weren't able to bring that into work. And I think one of the big changes that's happening now is we're recognizing and lots of research showing this there's a good book called The Athena Doctrine where they did, I think it was Boston Consulting Group that uh, that published it, or maybe Bain. They did 60,000 interviews of people around the world and 30,000 people were asked, what are the qualities of good leaders? Uh, and 30,000 were asked, what do you consider masculine? What do you consider feminine from a list of words? And then they correlated the two data and what they found was that uh, the traits of good leadership today are overwhelmingly feminine traits. Uh, their compassion, empathy, patience, inclusiveness, nurturing, etc. And that in the old days, what we would consider good leaders and are more like a commanding general, right? That those are no longer valued by by men or women, you know, for that matter. So again, all of this is coming together to say it's fundamentally going to transform society. Now, the careful uh, what we have to be careful about is not to go from one extreme to the other. You know, we don't want to get bipolar. These are polarities: masculine energy and feminine energy are interconnected. Uh, energies, right? If we abandon one, then the other one becomes unhealthy, right? So if you only have masculine in the absence of the feminine, that's what we've had in the world. It became aggressive and domineering and all of that. If we only have feminine energy, then that can become smothering, right? And uh, controlling and needy and, you know, dependent and so forth. So we need a healthy blend. So what we need is for all leaders, men or women, to become whole human beings, who are equally connected to their masculine energy and their feminine energy. As Carl Jung said, every man has an inner woman, every woman has an inner man. We need to awaken that and integrate that within us so that we're not fractured. So that you can show up with love, you can show up with toughness, right, as needed. And in fact, we go further now. It's not just about masculine and feminine. It's also about the elder and the child energy, uh, the, the higher self, the divine self, right? The wisdom, the meaning, the purpose, all of that side you know, of us, uh, that's our elder energy. Then there's the healthy child energy, the joy, laughter, humor, uh, creativity, playfulness. You know, you cannot create or be innovative if you don't have a healthy child energy inside you, right? So we have, but most of us have a wounded child. We have trauma from our childhood. So if we don't heal that, you know, then we end up you know, it shows up as aggression and violence in the world, unhealed childhood traumas. You know, many people say Donald Trump is an example of unhealed childhood traumas, you know, which is why he showed up the way he did. So we need wisdom of the elder, the joy of the child. We need the, you know, the, the masculine and the feminine, the healthy father, healthy mother energy. So the phrase that Nilima and I use now is the wise fool of tough love. The ideal, whole, conscious leader is wise and foolish. Right? They have deep wisdom and yet they are playful. 
If you look at the Dalai Lama, you will experience this, right? He has tremendous wisdom, but he also has tremendous playfulness. He's childlike. He's not childish, but he's childlike, right? So wise fool of tough love. You have to have toughness and you have to come from love. As Martin Luther King said, we must be tough-minded and tender-hearted at the same time, right? So that to me is the ideal leader, ideal human being, ideal parent. And then we have to know what is needed in a given situation. Do I need to show up with wisdom? Do I need to show up with, with playfulness? Do I need to show up with toughness? Do I need to show up with just gentle love? Right. So we have to have the ability to discern what is needed in a given situation. Uh, right. I'm just curious about what are your like transformational points um, in uh, your life so far that have influenced you the most? Uh, yeah, there's uh, there, so there's transformational points, and then there are what I would call synchronicities, thing that you know something that seemed like a coincidence that happened, but ultimately it fits part of a pattern that took you on your journey. There's a wonderful book called Synchronicity by Joseph Jaworski that uh, that gets into that. That what we label as coincidences are really they are things that the universe is nudging us towards, because that's where our purpose and our path is. I think it probably started with I was doing my MBA in Bombay and uh, I had a job lined up and and one day I come down for breakfast and about uh, eight of my friends are dressed up and going somewhere. Uh, and I said, where are you guys going? We don't have classes today. So we're going to the U.S. Information Agency to get GMAT applications. That's a graduate management aptitude test. I said, why do you need that? We're already doing our MBA. They said, no, we want to apply for a PhD in business in the U.S. Well, I said, I didn't know you could get a PhD in business. So I had lived in the U.S. as a child, so I always wanted to come back, but I didn't know how. So I said, give me five minutes, I'll come with you uh, and get the application and apply too. You know? So I did. And the irony is that out of that group of eight or nine, I'm the only one who ends up coming here to get a PhD in business. Right? So that's how I became a professor. Suddenly my life changed dramatically, right? But that was my path. Now, then I became a professor and I was, you know, because it was not a passion, it was not a dream, it was just a way to come to the U.S., I was somewhat skeptical about... Many of the things I was learning about business, the whole idea of profit maximization being the only purpose. And then I was doing a PhD in marketing. Wow, we, we waste a lot of money in marketing and we're not very honest and we're not very ethical. I see in marketing a lot of it, you know. So I had all this questioning about marketing. So I had unhappiness uh, about it uh, as well. And uh, I also had uh, at some level, you know, because I come from this very patriarchal system, I had a father who got a PhD in in, uh, in in plant genetics, you know, in plant breeding. And I got a PhD in marketing. So I always had this thing, I'm not living up to my father. And I used to say my father got a PhD in, uh, in agriculture science so he could help cure world hunger. And I get a PhD in marketing so I can help sell more potato chips. You know? <laughs> I didn't feel like I had a worthy, noble purpose, you know. So So I was kind of in that mode for many years. But then I think the distinct moment was June of 2005. So I'm sitting in the Poconos and I'm writing this book, which had started with the title, The Shame of Marketing. I was looking at all the things marketing did wrong, but then I turned it around and I called it In Search of Marketing Excellence. I said, companies spend a lot of money on marketing and they get lousy outcomes. Which are the companies that don't have to spend much money and yet their customers love them? And with that lens, I found a bunch of companies. So I'm writing some of the stories of these companies. And I find myself with tears in my eyes. And I said to my co-author sitting across the table, I said, David, I've never had tears of joy connected to my work. You know, I've often had anger and frustration 
feelings of anger and frustration, but never tears of joy. I said, I think my purpose just found me. You know, that I'm so moved by the humanity and the love that these businesses are able to show, even though they are for-profit, publicly traded companies, that this is the story of business that I want to be part of. This is the story of business I want to spread uh, in the world because that speaks to me at a human level. It's not just at the intellectual level, but at the heart and soul level. And so that was a turning point in my life, awakening in a way to my purpose. Uh, and that's what led me to start Conscious Capitalism with uh, the founder of Whole Foods. He read that book. He loved it. He invited me to come and spend a day with him. We had a vision. Uh, so we decided to launch that in 2008. And so that that then defined my work. And, and I wrote about five or six different books after that with Bob and the Shakti book and, and others, uh, continuing that journey. Uh, and then in 2018, I would say another significant turning point uh, where I worked with a coach for the first time. And when I told her the story of my life, my relationship with my father, which was very difficult, he was the opposite of me, uh, and my mother and then my work. And she said, do you realize that you have been honoring your mother with your work uh, for the last 15 years? That you spent 45 years trying to impress your father and be worthy of him, but then you discovered your true path, which was to bring her loving energy into the world of business. Because my mother was an embodiment of the pure, you know, feminine love, unconditional love. My father's love was conditional. If you do what I say, you know, then I love you. If you don't, then you're, you're, you're dead to me. You know, that kind of thing. He cut me off for five years because I, you know, he didn't want me to marry the person I wanted to marry. Right? So those kinds of things. So, so that became a clarifying point for me to say, wow, this is what I've been doing. This is what the world needs. The world has enough of the hyper-masculine energy, domination, aggression, you know, all of business, politics, everything has so much of that. What we really need is that other side. And that's been my journey to bring so far. And now what I'm finding through writing this book is that's not the end of the journey, right? So it's honoring my mother. That's the chapter I just finished. Now I'm writing Healing from the Father Wound, right? But the next chapter is Becoming Whole. So I need to actually reconcile within myself. There are gifts from my father that I need to acknowledge and use. Right? He was very adventurous. He was bold. He was creative thinker in the world, you know, all of that. But combine that with the love of my mother. And that's really what the world needs. It's not doesn't just need the love. Without love without strength is ineffective. Strength without love is tyranny. And so how do we bring those two things together? So I think that's kind of the, the journey. These are the milestones or mileposts that have shaped my life and changed my perspective. And so I'm curious now to see what the next chapter will be now that I, once I finish this book, you know, how I want to bring that into the world. This book is called Awaken, the journey from harmony to healing. You know, and it was, I used to be so afraid of conflict that I always looked for harmony in every situation, but sometimes you have to engage in healthy conflict, right? You have to stand up for what is right in order to then get to real healing. So that's kind of a lesson, I think, for me, but I think maybe for a lot of other people as well to learn from that. What would you say is your, like, like passion that comes from this, you know, Latin word called um, patire, which is more close to sacrificing and suffering rather than, like, something just joyful? My purpose as I define it now, is to bring heart, healing, and soul to the world of business and leadership 
so that we can build a better world for all. Right. So that's how I think about my work and my life now. Right. So it's not just, you know, for, I think part of my journey is for the last 10, 15 years, I've been deeply fulfilled in the arena of work. But in my personal life, I did not have all the things that I would want, you know. So how do I integrate my life and make sure that everything is, is, is integrated in that way? So I think to me, there is no more noble purpose. There is no better cause in the world than to change the way we do business. Because business is such a powerful force on this planet. Uh, it impacts every one of our lives every hundreds of times a day. And, you know, in many ways it has negative effects. That's why I wrote the book called The Healing Organization. I saw the suffering that business has caused without intending to do so, right? Business set out to say, okay, we make money. And that's what uh, business is about. But in the co- in the process of doing that, we have created a world in which most people are suffering at work. It's incredibly stressful. Heart attacks are 20% higher on Mondays. Uh, 120,000 Americans die every year from stress connected to work. 600,000 Chinese die from overwork, uh, too much work. Uh, almost 90% of people feel they work for a company that doesn't see them as a human being, just sees them as a function or an object or a pair of hands, right? So it's very dehumanizing, and our work, I think, is literally killing us. And uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Business does not have to cause all this suffering. I believe that, you know, there's so much suffering in the world. I believe most of it is caused by human beings to themselves and to each other. And how do we change that is by changing our mindset and, and becoming aware and conscious and cooperating from love. And so, so that's what that journey is about. How do we go from hurting people to actually healing people through business? How can we create a business where, you know, it is a place of healing for those who work there? You leave at the end of every day physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and socially stronger than when you came in. How can we be a source of healing for our customers and our communities? How can we be a force for healing in society? So I think that to me is a, is a large and noble purpose that uh, I'm happy to devote the rest of my life to, but also build a movement of many, many more people who are going to devote their life to doing that. And I think we're making a difference. You know, we started in 2008 with this movement, and 2019 was a bit of a tipping point year. I remember I was at the Berlin Wall that year. Uh, We had our European conference, Conscious Capitalism Europe conference in Berlin. I was standing right next to the wall. It was the 30th anniversary of the bringing down of the Berlin Wall. And that changed the world. You know, the day before and the day after, the world was a different place. And and I think that's the kind of moment that in business we may be approaching, a tipping point where the conventional wisdom gets shifted. And in 2019, the Business Roundtable in the U.S., which is the collection of 180 of the largest companies here, changed their definition of the purpose of business from economic value creation to having a positive impact on, on, on society and the world, having its own higher purpose, and then creating value for all your stakeholders, you know, which are the first two principles of conscious capitalism. So so I feel like we're getting there. Davos had their stakeholder capitalism declaration that year. You know, there are many, many other uh, you know, signs that things are changing. So that really is what, what I want to see in my lifetime, is that the, the default way of being in business becomes this, this way, it's purpose-based, it's stakeholder-based, it's rooted in love and care, right? It's simultaneously creating positive impact on everybody that 
that we touch. And and because of that, we get great results, right? Yeah. You know, it's it's a spiritual, that's why we use the word conscious, right? This is a very spiritual uh, way of being, you know? And it comes from the wisdom of the world. You know, all of the wisdom traditions inform this, whether it's a golden rule in the Western traditions or whether it's look at Buddhism and, you know, the idea of, uh, uh, as the Buddha said, don't be attached to a cherished outcome. You know, if you set a particular goal and outcome for your business or for yourself, then you then you say you will engage in wrong actions in order to achieve a predetermined outcome. Right? So what we need to do is focus on the right actions. And those right actions will lead to right outcomes. And so right action is the purity of you know, make sure we're doing the right thing for everybody at all times. And then trust that when you do that, you will have good outcomes, including profits, but also including you know, healthy environment and flourishing people and all the rest of it. Everything will, will, uh, will go together. What would you say is like the long-term solution for, for business that you really believe in? Yeah, I, I mean, I really do believe that, which is why I've dedicated all my time to this now. Uh, you know, there are many movements out there to reform business. There's inclusive capitalism, there's Just Capital, there's B Corp, B Team, there's many, many others. But many of them focus on sustainability, many of them focus on uh, employee well-being, many of them focus on society. All of those are important. I think conscious capitalism is a, is a, a holistic framing of the whole thing. It brings in, I believe, all the dimensions, right? From sustainability to the well-being of people, you know, to the impact on on the planet, uh, to other other living beings, you know, etc. So I believe that this is a very comprehensive and practical approach. It not only tells you why we need to change and how we need to change, but what do you need to do in order to change? How do we get there? If you assume that you have all doors open to you and all resources available, what would you then rush to innovate and or change? I would change the curriculum uh, that we use in business schools if we could change that. So that's a longer-term impact because, as I said, we are producing half a million students every year in the U.S. graduating with business degrees. It's the largest major by far, and most of them are not learning the right approach or the right story of business, and hence they end up adding to the problems. So I would want to change that across the world, you know, change the story of business and educate people that business can be done in a way that is noble and beautiful and heroic. Uh, it's not just about making money. So I think that would be one. And the second would be to change the articles of incorporation so that people understand clearly that the purpose of business is not to maximize shareholder value, but to actually optimize stakeholder value, for all stakeholders, including society, and that you have to be chartered uh, in that way so that you are held accountable to that standard. Do you think you're, the students that you're teaching right now, for example, are they 100% aware of that already, do you think? Well, when they come into the course, uh, they're not aware of this, but they are unhappy with the existing way of being. That's why they sign up for a course called Conscious Capitalism. Uh, and by the end of it, I think it has a life-changing effect on most of them. It not only changes their perspective on, on business, but on work, and on life in general, you know, and then it connects them to their search for meaning and purpose. And many of them already find it, you know, during the course or others are in that inquiry when they come out of this. I think it changes the way they look at jobs and which companies they should work for and which companies they should not work for. You know, so I think it does have that impact pretty significantly. I mean, this class is more 
is as much about personal growth and personal development. I start every class with meditation, for example. You know, there's a lot of sharing in a very vulnerable way about challenges in our lives. I share about my life, you know, and uh, and so we have very deep conversations, uh, not just about you know, tactics of business. Do other professors, uh, your colleagues, um, get positively influenced by this as well, or do they feel like you 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 are like the alternative route somehow? Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think uh, I'm seen as a bit of an oddity. You know, I think the ac- the academy, like any other profession over time has gotten hijacked. It's lost its sense of purpose. And I know that in business academics, uh, for professors, just like companies try to maximize profits, professors try to maximize publications. So it's all about research uh, that can get published in the top journals and use a lot of mathematics and you know rigor and so forth. But and I would say 95% of those papers don't have any real impact and they're not trying to have a positive impact on society. They're just about how do we help companies become more profitable and more, uh, you know, win some market share and so forth. So it's not, there's no higher purpose connected to societal well-being for the most majority of people. Right? It's just about how do I get ahead in my career by publishing more and more articles. So I think we have to connect people uh, in the academy, and uh, one of my colleagues at Boston College wrote a book two years ago, three years ago, called Intellectual Shamans. And shaman is the word for healers, right, in the uh, in the traditional cultures, indigenous cultures. And she wrote about 28 business academics, and I was included in that book, who are actually uh, working in a way that is trying to bring healing to society, that is trying to bring ideas from other disciplines and other ways of thinking into business and leadership and having a positive impact through that. And so I think to me, all of us need to be shamans. doesn't matter if you're a professor or a doctor or a lawyer, we all need to be healers. We all need to bring our own unique way of healing into the world. Cause that's what, you know, to me, healing is about reducing suffering, bringing more joy and promoting healthy growth. And that's really what we're here for. I think. The system is designed in such a way now that it prevents people from pursuing anything other than that path if they want to get promoted, if they want to get tenure, you know. So that's another world we need to change. So Raj, there are a lot of leaders listening to this podcast and um, I'm thinking, is there like one single key kind of advice that you would like to take the opportunity to share? Well, you know, for leaders... That is the most important thing in the whole equation. You know, it's better leaders make for a better world. Bad leaders can destroy what might have taken decades or even centuries to create. And so having the right people with the right mindset in leadership is very important. You have to ask, why do you want to be a leader? Is it about your ego and your needs and you want to use other people to achieve your personal goals, if your answer is that, then I say that's not a leader, that's a tyrant. A tyrant is somebody who uses other people to achieve their personal goals. A true leader is there to take people to a better place, to serve them, right? to create a vision for what is possible and how do we get there. So you, as a leader, you have to have gone beyond your own narrow personal agenda to a broader agenda for people and for, for society and the world. 
So what are your motivations for becoming a leader? That's number one, very critical. And then number two is how do you then evolve yourself as a conscious leader? And I use the acronym selfless. Selfless, which means you're not selfish. The opposite is selfish. So first of all, you have to make sure you're not a selfish human being or not thinking in a selfish way as you become a leader. You have transcended the narrow self. You're now about the collective. And then it stands for the qualities. And that's how you need to cultivate the qualities of strength, strength and courage, right? You need that to be a leader. You have to have energy and enthusiasm. And you get that by having a purpose. Uh, You have to be rooted in love and not fear, right? So again, strength and love both have coming together, right? In that Uh, flexibility, F is for flexibility. You have to know what kind of energy is needed in a given situation. Long-term orientation. You have to think beyond your tenure. Yoga might be leader for five years, but what can happen in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, right? You have to think beyond your lifetime even. And then you have emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence, and systems intelligence. Uh, All of those can be cultivated and grown. You know, we're not born with a lot of those, but we can develop those. Your IQ, analytical intelligence, is fixed. But these other intelligences can be cultivated and grown dramatically. And that's what is more important for a leader, to understand themselves, to understand others, right? To understand the role of meaning and purpose, which is spiritual intelligence. To understand how systems work, how things are interconnected and interdependent, so that we understand the business is a complex living organism. And how do we need to... Uh, lead that and shape that so that it achieves optimal outcomes uh, for all. So those are some of the avenues for leaders uh, to develop themselves. All of those can be cultivated and grown. Self-insight is incredibly important and so like easy to to, um, kind of not prioritize, not have time for Nowadays, it's much more, if you could like, socially accepted also <laughs> that people are wanting to definitely understand themselves, know themselves uh, better. Just as a, as a final question to you, what do you think that the, the world needs most at this very time? I think the world needs to unify around the common challenges facing humanity and the planet. That all of these, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, the pandemic, or even social inequality. These are not national issues. These are not uh, political issues. Right? These are global issues. They are happening to us at a collective level. And we need to respond at a collective level. Right? We are all in one the same boat. This planet is one system. Humanity is one spirit. So we have to start acting that way. That We are interconnected and interdependent. Our fates are intertwined. And unless we come together to address these global challenges... We don't have a future. You know, another hundred years, who knows what happens to this planet and to human society. So it is a, there's a great sense of urgency uh, in the world right now uh, and the need for global perspectives and also across sectors that we need business to work with government, to work with education and the civil society in order to create a common vision for what the world needs and how do we all play our part. And business needs to play a more active role in that you know in the past business simply said give us low taxes and give us infrastructure and then let us make our money and now it's no how can we be part of the solution because we became part of the problem we created you know all of the pollution we created a lot of the global warming we created social inequality by not paying people a living wage or not allowing them to evolve and grow and so over 40 50 years we've created conditions that are now 
explosive. You know, we could have revolutions in many countries around the world if we don't change. Right? We're starting to see the rise of populist leaders and we're starting to see populist movements in Chile and Brazil and UK and US and many, many countries. Right? So we need to address these, these big, big global challenges. Right? Future pandemics, climate change, social inequality. And we have to make a commitment. You know, the phrase I use, the book I wrote with Bob is called Everybody Matters. So everybody matters and everybody needs to win. Okay, and in the world of business, we have created uh, an environment in which some people win and most people lose. And that's not okay. If somebody is losing, if our employees are losing, if our customers are losing, if our communities are losing, if our suppliers are losing, if other species of life are losing, then we have not created the right approach to business. Even if our competitors are losing, you know, if we are destroying our competitors, well, that's not a good thing either, right? We have competitors, we should be growing together, you know, and becoming, making each other better all the time. You know? So I think that, to me, that summary phrase, everybody matters and everybody needs to win. And how do we create business where that is true? Great. That's, that's so, so important. Thank you so much, Raj. Uh, and uh, thanks for your time and for sharing everything. And um to find out more, they will find uh, all links and, and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. And um, I just wanted to ask you before we finish, how was it to be on this podcast? <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed your questions. Your questions are a little bit different than most. So that was, that was fun. Okay. So thank you. Uh, so remember to uh, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing Raj. Uh, please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao, ciao Raj. Ciao.